please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, book one of the Psalms. We'll look at Psalm 4 today in our series through the first 41 Psalms, also known as book one of the Psalms. And in just a moment, I'm going to read Psalm 4 for us, and you should hopefully have it on that handout. If not, feel free to get up right in the back podium behind you. In the middle aisle, you should find the handout with the psalm. You can follow along, even if you don't have a Bible, with the verses there. Before I read the text, I want to ask you a question. If you could take a magic pill, a magic pill that would strengthen your immune system, substantially decrease your risk of various cancers, lower your chance of getting Alzheimer's disease, help you not get congestive heart failure or have a stroke. And at the same time, in addition to all of those things, it has positive side effects of preventing and helping with depression or anxiety. If such a pill existed, do you think that you would take it, want it, buy it? How many Americans do you think would desperately want that? I don't know of a pill like that, but increasingly studies have shown that there is something even better than a magic pill. Sleep. Simply put, data is showing that the shorter you sleep on a consistent basis, the shorter you will live. Maybe you've heard someone say, I I don't need to sleep. I'll sleep once I die. Sadly, those of us who are not getting regular sleep will probably be dead a whole lot sooner than those who are getting sleep. Is this you? Did you get enough sleep this last week? Can you think and remember a morning when you woke up and you felt rested? The alarm clock did not wake you up. You felt refreshed. You did not need caffeine to get you going in the morning. Chances are one-third of Americans, therefore maybe one-third of us, did not get the recommended seven to nine hours every night this week. Now why is this? The answers are probably too many to recount, and I'm no sleep expert nor medical doctor. I'm sure there are many reasons and explanations that would be almost trite, simplistic, unhelpful, Especially spiritually, a pastor getting up and saying, if you just trust God, you should get a good night's sleep. And if you're not getting a good night's sleep, well, it's because you don't trust God. That's not what this sermon is about. It might be good to remind all of you, I am a father on Father's Day. I have five children. I'm well aware that circumstances are outside of our control, and I often don't get a good night's sleep. And I don't think it's a reflection of my trust in God when my one-year-old is crying. But the psalm we're looking at today not only gives us instructions for how to go to bed, but it describes a life that is filled with a peaceful, restful trust in God. Let's look at Psalm 4 together. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, 
How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, as we look at this psalm together, I want us to see on your handout the basic thematic structure of the psalm. And what I mean by that is, unlike last week, I don't think the Selah really gives us the the big idea of the theme, although it may be important to the original structure of how they sang this song. So let's follow this thematic structure where the first point is in verse 1, a call to God, calling out, crying out, to God. Then we see, starting in verse 2, all the way down to verse 5, secondly, commands to men. So the audience shifts from a call talking directly to God to secondly, the main section of this psalm is section 2, commands to men. Thirdly, the psalm ends in verses 6, 7, and 8 with confidence in the Lord. And what I want you to notice as we consider sleep as just an important picture of trust and faith for a Christian is that this psalm begins with crying out to God and then it ends with a description of one who is peacefully lying down at rest, getting a good night's sleep because, notice that important word for, because the Lord is providing security. Additionally, we should notice two more things that relate to sleep. The first thing we should notice is verse 4. One of the commands that is in this command section is that before you go to bed, ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Instructions for how to go to bed. How much more practical can you get than that? And lastly, I want to point out that if you turn your eyes to Psalm 3 verse 5, you'll see, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And then over in chapter 5, verse 3, Psalm 5, verse 3, you'll notice, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, all of those observations together, the beginning and the end, the way the psalm begins and then ends with this description of sleep, the middle instruction about how to go to sleep, and then the fact that Psalm 4 is bracketed around what is often called a morning and then an evening and then a morning again. Psalm 3 talks about how I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to go to sleep and then I woke up in the morning sustained by your mercy and grace, O God. That was Psalm 3. Then here in Psalm 4, it's how then at the end of the day to go to bed. And this is why many people have said with this important Psalm 1 theme of meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, that when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, the Psalms begin in book 1 with a morning and an evening prayer. 
And then you wake up in Psalm 5 the next day and you offer your right sacrifices to God the next morning. Thematically, it seems like it's safe to say this is a song about sleep. Not all about sleep, not everything that should and can be said, but it is definitely a theme not here in Psalm 3, 4, and 5, but it is a theme throughout the Psalms. The Psalms depict a man or a woman, a believer, a worshiper in God as one who gets rest. And in light of all of those things, I want to offer one big idea, one simple sentence to remember for this message. When you think about Psalm 4 and you think about God and the Bible this week, think about this. We can rest because God has worked, is working, and will work. One sentence, one summary. I want you to think about the fact that you and I are invited into peaceful rest because God has worked, is working, and he will work in the future. And I think if we take those three verbs, has worked, is working, will work, they nicely unpack our three sections of Psalm 4. Let's start with verse 1. Calling out to God has a structure about it that begins verse 1 and ends verse 1 with, answer me when I call, and then notice the way it's bracketed by, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. There's times when I read these descriptions by the psalmist and I feel like, that's bold, isn't it? Does it seem bold to you? Answer me. I don't know if that's the tone. It could be more desperate. Clearly from Psalm 3, we have the beginning of this book of Psalms in distress and trouble. It's more of like a, God, hear my prayer. Ah, Crying in distress. Would you listen to me? I've got nowhere else to go. So I don't think we should have the idea of like, I demand you to hear me. But rather, I've got nowhere else to go. I'm coming to you, God. So would you hear me? No one else is listening. And the reason I think that's the case is not only because of the middle sandwich. This has got an A, B, B, A structure in verse 1. A, answer me when I call. B, why? Because you are my righteousness. You are the God who is righteous. On the basis of who I know you to be, I know that if I am innocent and if I am in your standing as righteous, you will hear me. And so I pray, I call. The second half of the middle reasoning for praying and turning to God is, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, this is past tense. Notice very carefully, you have given me relief. So this is why I said we can rest because God has done what? Worked. He's worked in the past. He's been faithful in the past and given relief to this psalmist. You have done this in the past when I was in distress. Now, this language here of given relief in distress creates a powerful word picture. The concept is right. Relief and distress, good translation. But when you read the Psalms in the original language, you realize as a preacher, you don't really need to think of illustrations. One pastor said, when you preach the Psalms, you take a good preacher and make him a great preacher because there's all kinds of illustrations that just flow out. Just by sticking to the text, here's the illustration. You have given me relief 
is the word you have given me space. Because the word distress is I am cramped, I am stuck, I am in crowded and surrounded by enemies, I am in a corner and I've got nowhere to go. Isn't that a good word picture? You ever felt stuck in life? You ever sensed like I've got nowhere to go, I've got no space to move? Just picture that feeling of just everything crushing down around you. That's the psalmist. And he's saying time and time again, when in that space, you give me space. You give me room. You enlarge my surroundings. That's the literal translation of that phrase. And he says it in past tense, saying that I'm calling to you because I know in the past you were faithful, and so therefore I'm depending upon you to continually be faithful. We can rest Because in the past, we know that God has faithfully provided for us when we've been in a jam and we've been stuck and we've got nowhere to turn. And in our desperation, we cry out to God. And that is the basis for coming to God because you know what he's like. A psalmist knows what his God is like. A proven, faithful, righteous God. So I exhort you to rest in God on the basis of his faithful work in the past. Turn to him. Call to him. Cry to him. Look back at his past faithfulness. Has he not proven faithful to you? Is church not the blessing of seeing a group of people when you look around and you say, yeah, he's been faithful. Secondly, we can rest because God has worked and is working. He is working through his spirit. I'm going to jump forward to a little New Testament language saying that God through his spirit is going to sanctify us as we see his commands in his word and delight ourselves in the law of the Lord and say that's what I want my life to look like. So look at starting in verse 2, the second section, the commands to men and see how God might work through these exhortations. Commands, don't think commands like laws. Think of these commands as encouragements What could God do right now in your day-to-day life, right now, working in and through his word? The psalmist says, O men, so shift. I cry to you, God, now the song shifts from vertical focus to horizontal focus. We actually do have songs like this, by the way. We have corporate singing that sometimes is, God, you are my living hope. And then we have songs that say something like, Together, let's sing. And you've you're, you got this picture of encouraging one another. Come on, let's, let's all consider how good our God is. And the language is we, and it's about us, and it's about encouraging and exhorting one another to put our focus on God. That's exactly what's going on here. Encouragements, commandments as this is good for you. But it begins with a question saying, Men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? There's a lot of details that would need to be explained, but I think one simple way of summarizing this is that if you take my honor as actually the honor of the Lord, which there's good arguments for that, and additionally the vain words and seek after lies as like false teaching from the false idolatrous gods of the day, and especially in light of the rest of the psalm, it seems like the best way to understand this is, men, why are you forsaking God? Why are you bringing dishonor upon God and loving the vain emptiness 
of the false gods that are surrounding us? I want you to think about that question, Selah. At this point, the psalmist is saying to men who I believe aren't just men in the world, but worshipers. Notice that the last commandment is offer up right sacrifices, not false worship to a, a pagan deity. So not just the men out there. This is corporate worship song, singing, encouragements to the fellow believers in the community. And these fellow worshipers are told in the present, you are turning away from the one faithful true God that's been faithful in the past. And instead of resting in his security, you are seeking. See that language? Seeking, striving, working to get the results that you want from other gods instead of the one true God. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I think this is relevant. I think you and I need to pause ourselves and ask the question, how long will it take for the crazy Northwest American suburban Chicago land Christians to see how empty and futile it is for us to run around seeking after the goals of this world. How long until we see that our crazy busy lives and lack of sleep is as much for many of us related to our constant work and our inability to say no because we want to say yes to everything that the world has to offer. Let's not wait so long. How long? How long? Will it be too late for you? Will you literally be sleepless to your death and cut your life short when you realize, I should have just said no and went to bed? Let's not wait that long. Let's instead hear these four encouragements, these commandments from the psalmist to help us in the present right now. We can rest in God because God will work through his word if you trust his word now, right now, through his spirit to say, that's a better way to live than the American dream. First, know, that's the, the verb, the command, know. Know that Yahweh, the Lord, the personal covenant, faithful God has set apart the godly for himself. He is for you. He wants you. You need to know that. When your circumstances look like he is against you, you need to know, no, he is for you. So begin acknowledging and knowing that he hears you when you call. Have you been duped into the lie? There's really just no God out there and you're just talking to the air. He's not personal. If there is a God, he's distant, far off, and abstract. It's just some positive force. There's not one who is attentive to your cry. Begin right now by believing. Know this, brothers and sisters. The Lord has set apart for himself a people. He has chosen a people. He wants a people. He is not distantly putting his arms folded and saying, we'll see. He's actively seeking and searching and saving the lost. He wants you to cry out to him because he listens. Second commandment, be angry and do not sin. Be angry. That's a command. You're allowed to be angry. Anger is not sinful. 
You can be angry and not sin. In fact, that's what you're being commanded to do. Be angry and then don't sin. Even in Kenny's prayer just a minute ago, didn't he say, the Lord, you're slow to anger. The Lord is angry, but he is slow to anger. So be angry slowly, righteously. And there will be many times in our lives where our circumstances and our situation and our feeling cramped in and stuck with nowhere to go, we'll look around and be like, I'm not happy about this. You're not supposed to just look at that situation and say, oh, it's great, I have Jesus. You can be angry. You can express the emotion of anger. You're being commanded to. For many of you, you really need to think about this. You've been told too often anger is and always is wrong. Don't ever get angry. Why you get angry is really important. How you get angry is really important. But you're being commanded to be angry and do not sin. I don't know about you, but it seems kind of random, doesn't it? Why are they going to be angry? What's the context here? I get the idea. Call upon the Lord when, he's, when we're in distress, we need his help. All right, maybe when we're struggling, we might get frustrated with God. Exactly. Look down at verse 6. Why would these people be tempted to be angry with God and turn to other gods? Verse 6, I think, is the key to the background of this psalm and understanding this commandment to be angry. There are many who say, who will show us some good? And then they say, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Phil's translation here. Verse 6 is saying, there's a bunch of people that are coming to church who are believers in God, and they're doubting the goodness of God. They're wondering, when's God going to actually show up? When's he actually going to be good? Because when I look around, it's not good. And so we're praying, God, why don't you show us some favor? That's what this phrase, the light of your face to shine upon us means. The favor of God, where it's like his face is lit up with happiness and gladness and you look up to the heavens and you see a God smiling down upon you and instead the psalmist is acknowledging that there are people in the church congregation that are saying I don't know when he's going to show himself I don't know when he's going to actually reveal himself to be good we're going to pray and be would you actually smile because I feel like all I see is a frown that's the context of the psalmist And he's saying, there will be times when that will be exactly how you feel. And in those times, be angry, but don't sin. It will seem to us that God is not good and his ways are not good. And so very practically, how can I be angry and not sin? I think it's very much connected to the third commandment, ponder. Ponder. Do you see that down in your text? Ponder in your own hearts. This is right after be angry and do not sin in verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. The phrase ponder here is to talk to yourself. So if you want the literal translation, it says, have a conversation with yourself as you lie on your bed in silence. Spend some time reflecting and talking and thinking and working this out. Can you see why Kenny came up and read for us Ephesians 4? Or can you see why, more importantly, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 
says, put away all falsehood, put away all false gods, put away all temptations to believe the lies, speak truth, be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. And then notice this phrase, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Can you tell he's working from Psalm 4 as he gives us the instructions for the New Testament church? Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In fact, the commandment is ponder, speak to yourself. Lie in bed before you go to bed, and I want you to be thinking and talking and having a conversation, and let that deal with your anger. In other words, I think that the idea is you need to have a routine and a ritual for how to deal with these emotions, these feelings, these thoughts about being frustrated with your present circumstances. And so I do want to very practically ask each of you, do you know what your routines and rituals are before you go to bed? You have them. Do you know what they are? Do you ever do inventory about your steps before going to bed? If I had to guess, way too many of us make the last thing we do is scrolling through something on our something. Everything that I have ever read about that habit and ritual says it's bad for you. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you want to study this from science or the Bible, it seems as if if you take your phone and you scroll through Facebook, some of you are going to start getting angry as you get jealous about what's going on in other people's lives, and then you're going to go to bed. Well, that's not lying silent in your bed, pondering anew what the Almighty might do. I would really recommend, very practically, this psalm has a little practical angle to it, so very practically, I would encourage you, treat your phone and your devices like children. My children have bedtimes. Parents, fathers, a gift on Father's Day. You'll be served to have bedtimes for your kids. Now they get to a certain age where you might want to, hey, we've trained you, we've taught you, go to bed when you need to go to bed. But a bedtime, a consistent bedtime. Your devices should be like that. Let's say 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Put your phone, your iPad, your computer, your TV in a different room. Turn it off, power it down, charge it in, do whatever you want. Buy an old school alarm clock. That is the lamest excuse. Well, I need it for my alarm. No, you don't. Seriously? Amazon, right now, $5. I guarantee you'll find something cheap and it'll get here before the end of the day. Get an alarm clock and put your technology to bed so that the last thing you're doing will not stir you up to anger when you read the news. Evening news. Huh! I, I, I cannot stand watching 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock evening news. And then go to bed after thinking about that? It will only stir up more angst and lead to bad sleep. So ponder. Have a conversation with yourself. Be silent. Do you know for thousands of years, Christians have practiced something called silence? As like a main staple for how to grow as a Christian. If there was one overlooked, neglected practice of a Protestant, American, busy church goer at Embassy Church, I would think up there at the top of the list might be Moments of silence. Just long, 
awkward pauses. Before you pray, before you go to bed. In fact, if we have such long pauses because we're having such a hard time getting through our prayer today, thank you, Kenny, by the way, and you fall asleep, praise God that you are falling asleep in the midst of prayer and worship with the people of God. I mean this all wholeheartedly, sincerely. What better place to get a little nap than in the presence of God and his people as we worship? Maybe that might teach you how to fall asleep when you go to bed at night. So, I mean this wholeheartedly. If I look out and you're dozing off, I'm not like, hmm. I'm thinking, hallelujah. Apparently you needed some sleep and church was the place that you got it. And if pondering and thinking about the things of God just turned your head on your pillow or pew to sleep, then I'm excited. Selah. Fourth and finally, the psalmist encourages, exhorts us. Wake up the next morning. You go to bed. You've pondered what God has done, is doing, will do. And you wake up the next morning and you offer right sacrifices, putting your trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what is keeping you from trusting in the Lord? Will you offer up both morning and evening sacrifices? Not the sacrifices that David's talking about of blood from bulls and goats, but a sacrifice that wholly rests on the finished work of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the once and for all final sacrifice. As New Testament Christians, we should read this verse slightly different than the way David originally wrote it. Offer up the right and the only sacrifice. Come to the Lord on the basis of the blood of Christ and his finished work in the past, his continual work in the present, and his promised work in the future. So I ask you again, what is keeping you from trusting in the Lord as you're being commanded to and offering up and turning to God a right sacrifice? Have you considered how good the Lord has been lately? Have you had enough space? Is your calendar too crammed? That crammed picture, that's many of you when you look at your calendars. And I'm praying that this message will lead many of us to have enlarged spaces of nothing on our calendars. Maybe for a whole day, maybe for moments before and after meetings, maybe the way we close down the end of our days. That you would be able to ponder and consider night after night God is good. He's been good. He is good, and he is worthy of our trust. And this is how the psalm ends. If we look squarely in at verses 6, 7, and 8, we notice that the psalm ends with a declaration of confidence and trust and this beautiful picture that we've been meditating on of sleep. There are many who say, who will show us some good? This is verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There are many We're doubting and wondering if God is, in fact, worthy of trust, if he is good. And this is how the psalmist sums things up, comes to a conclusion and says, but yet you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
In one sentence, we can rest because God has worked, he is working, and he will work to keep you safe. You can lie down at night, in the future, tonight. You can lie down and you can sleep because you know that the Lord will keep you safe. You can dwell in safety in the arms of the Lord. And you can know that when you look at your financial statements in your bank account, which is my equivalent translation of, they've got a lot of money in their grain and wine. It's abounding. We're talking about agricultural society a couple thousand years ago. You're looking around sometimes and you're thinking, I'm not seeing the goodness of God in my bank account in the prosperity of my life right now. And the psalmist, he gets right to the heart of it, doesn't he? I have more joy in my heart than the joy that comes from a billion-dollar bank account. Read Habakkuk 3 today before you go to bed tonight. It will do you a lot of good. Even if the fig tree does not blossom and the flowers, they start to fade away. Even when the barns are empty, yet I will rejoice and praise the God of my salvation. How in the world can you sleep and lie down and have this lifestyle that is epitomized and defined by a sense of peaceful rest? And I'll even go this far to say, even when you can't sleep tonight, this is still on the table for you. This is not only for those of you that don't have one-year-olds waking you up in the middle of the night or some kind of physical ailment that's not allowing you to get consistent sleep. I know. I'm, I'm young. I know some of you are older, and you have told me, Phil, it's happening. That body's going to break down, and you're going to be getting up a lot more through the night. You just wait. I know. And so I offer to all of you a kind of rest that is beyond the physical rest of sleep. Better than the magic pill that we talked about at the beginning. An eternal security and protection of lying down in your grave. Of knowing that the ultimate rest, the ultimate tombstone would be verse 8 in peace. I lie down and my body sleeps. For you alone. What did I say earlier? Key word here. For. The basis of these kind of things is not flippant. It's not pie in the sky. It's on grounds, reasons for having a lifestyle of rest. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Some of you might know this word peace. It's the word shalom. It means wholeness. It's the idea that everything is right in the world. And so many things are broken and falling apart. We don't experience that peace when we lie down and sleep at night. And this isn't a beautiful picture of our lives. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we are told that there is now peace with God for those who have faith in Christ. And therefore, in the greatest and the most ultimate sense, this is a picture of salvation. Of the ultimate rest of our bodies lying down in the grave. I want you forever to think about going to bed at night and every muscle of your body, as much as physically possible, is not doing any work 
but resting. And in that moment, as you lie in bed, you need to be thinking, I can rest because the Lord Jesus Christ worked. I can rest because the Lord Jesus Christ worked in the establishment of creation, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then, on the sixth day of Sabbath day, he rested as he died on a cross and was buried into the ground, and his body laid flat, not moving a muscle. That picture, lying flat, not moving a muscle, that is the picture of the righteous, those who are in Christ. For too many of us, that picture that we have in our mind of who those that are in the world that God would love and deem acceptable and worthy, we think of those that are busy working. And the Bible paints a different picture. Strive to enter his rest. Lie there, not moving a muscle and saying, I can rest. Not because of all the accomplishments that I did today, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ who hung on a cross in my place, died the death that I deserved, did perfectly everything that the Father required of him, and then he was buried into the ground. Three days later, he rose again from the dead on the first day of the new week, Resurrection Sunday. He ascended into heaven and he offered that work to the Father. He said, look at the work that I did while I was on the earth. And the father looked at that work and said, I am pleased. And then he poured out the Holy Spirit on each of us so that you and I would be able to rest and have faith in the work that God has done in the past, is doing now through his spirit, and he promised that he will do when he rises you and me from the dead. Go to bed. Maybe get an early bedtime tonight. Seven to nine hours? But no matter what you get, let's have a ritual of reminding ourselves of the beautiful picture of resting in the finished work of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, On this Father's Day, we call out to you. We cry out to you because you are our righteousness. Because you alone are the one true good Father that none of us in this room have ever lived up to. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We call out to you. We cry out to you because we know that you have been faithful in the past. We know that your finished work on the cross through the Son, Jesus Christ, is sufficient for us. And on the basis of the blood of Christ and the merits of his finished work, we pray and ask that we would be able to go to bed tonight. For many of us, I pray we would actually get physical sleep, but at the end of the day, my prayer is that we would be a community of people that know what it means to rest our soul in the security of our Savior. To know what it means to be in Christ, to ponder anew what the Almighty has done, is doing, and will do. And so we pray and ask that we would have comfort in this life right now, but we would especially have comfort in death. In Jesus' name, amen.